0: And definitions, and, and all the different things uh, that that go on there, and I'm just really looking forward uh, to these eleven verses we're going to look at this morning. Uh, last week, if you remember, uh, we were in John chapter seven. Uh, we finished John chapter seven. We were the context was at the feast of booths, and we were there for a month or so talking about what was going on there. Um, we saw Jesus make claims. We saw Jesus make promises. Um and then we saw people and how they responded to Jesus and what he said and and the promise that he made and we saw people responding to Jesus in different ways. Um we saw some believe, we saw rejection, we saw indifference, we saw hatred. It, we just saw people respond in all these these different ways, but it really comes down to did they receive him or did they reject him? Regardless of how they they acted towards him, it came down to receiving or rejection. Um it was a interesting study to see how people respond. We saw that people still respond the same way today as we fast forward a few thousand years. But our study last week ended with the feast week being over and everyone going home. Remember that verse 53 of, of chapter 7, It just the feast week kind of ends, and every man went unto his own house. Um, if John chapter 8, verse number 1, is uh, chronological with chapter 7, We're going to be in 8 1 today. We were in 7 last week. Then we have everyone going home. We have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives. And we'll talk about that in a little bit there. But everyone's going home. You have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives. And just that thought was interesting to me because you have people. Remember, for the week, they were living in booths. They would make huts or tents or whatever you want to call them, makeshift shelters. And they would live out in the streets or they would live on a rooftop for a week, to try to remember the wilderness wandering, and remember what God got them out of. They got themselves into a bad situation. They were remembering what happened in the wilderness. So you have everyone leaving these booths, this temporary camping for a week, going home, but you have Jesus having no home to go to. Remember Jesus said that uh, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head so you have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives. Everybody else gets to break down their camp and go home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Um, we have the King of Kings with no place to lay his head. Think about that for a second, because we've talked about it. We know how Jesus came to the earth. We understand that, that he came in humility. Uh, he uh, made himself of no reputation Took upon himself the form of a servant. We're talking about God, leaving heaven, coming to the earth. Humbled, as a servant. I I don't want to get used to that just to be something that I'm used to, and it just blows over my head because we have God being willing to humble Himself to come to this earth. That I mean that should that should never. The, the the love and the, the grace and the mercy and the compassion that you see Christ being willing to do that being willing to obey his father and and do his father's will as I studied this these 11 verses this week I really enjoyed seeing the way that Jesus handled the situation that we're going to look at you you can highlight all kinds of different things in this story you can highlight the adulterous woman or the the Pharisees and the scribes and the people. You could highlight all these different things. But as I studied it this time, I just loved seeing Jesus and the way that he responded, the way that he reacted, the way that he, he treated this woman and he, he interacted with the different people. I enjoyed this insight into seeing how God operated. It was sad to see the, the actions and the responses of the hypocritical religious leaders. But, but for me it was just just so encouraging i was I was so blessed to see that I have Jesus as my savior and my lord and I don't want that to get old because you, you see him working and you see his love you see his compassion all throughout scriptures and it can just become something that we can grow so used to and and, and oftentimes again we just let it blow over us when we have a God that loved us so much, a God that that showed us what love truly is, and and we have a Jesus that endured the cross, endured the suffering, endured the shame, being humbled as a servant. I, I just don't want that to ever get old. I want it to be fresh and new, and I want to be faithful and diligent to praise my Jesus for what He has accomplished. I'm so thankful to have a God that is kind, loving, gracious, and merciful. Because without Him, we'd have an eternal problem with no solution. We need Jesus. Uh, Let's get our text together this morning. Familiar, you could probably tell me the story. Um, John 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger Wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone the woman standing in the midst. Then Jesus, or when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for this this passage. Thank you for this reminder of of your workings and your dealings and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Um, I pray that you'll just encourage our hearts, our minds. Please uh, help us to uh, recognize who you are, to recognize your faithfulness. I pray that <coughs> that uh, you would please just help us to have a proper view, a proper perspective of you. That uh, we would just be in awe and wonder and reverence and a continual attitude of praise for your faithfulness, for your greatness. Um, Please help us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we have chapter 7 ending. We have the people leaving, going home, going to their place. Uh, For some people, this would have been a, a huge, long journey where people would have come to Jerusalem, traveled to Jerusalem uh, for this feast, one of the required feasts that they were to go to. So you have people leaving, going away. You have some people living in Jerusalem who didn't have that far to go. You have Jesus going up to the Mount of Olives that we've kind of mentioned that already. This Mount of Olives was about a mile east of Jerusalem. You're probably familiar with Mount of Olives. You, you've, you've heard that before, but it's about a mile east of Jerusalem um, maybe Jesus spent the night up on the hillside. Maybe, you know, Jesus would go alone and he would, he would pray. He'd spend time speaking with the Father, which is kind of what I believe he was doing here. Um, just some time to refresh and recharge. And I mean, I imagine as, as a human how it is to be rejected and, and mocked and, and, and hated. And you just need recharge to go, go back go back to it and have people do it all over again. So I imagine Jesus going to the Mount of Olives to to pray, to spend some time with the Father. Um, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived over by the Mount of Olives. He could have went and visited them for a little bit. This is just what he could have done. But as I said, I don't know what he did, but I believe that he did spend the time praying and resting. Then uh, you go to verse number 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came again unto him, And he sat down and he taught them. So early in the morning, Jesus comes back. He comes to the temple. Remember where the people had just rejected him and refused him? A few people believed, sure. But you have Jesus going back to the temple to teach again. You you see his diligence to minister. You see his diligence to care for the people. Um, You see courage and faithfulness to declare the truth. Many that rejected and hated him would have been there or would have been close. Many that wanted to trip him up and watch him fall and fail would be coming. This is what Jesus was walking into, but you see his faithfulness to deliver the message that he had to deliver. You have people trying to trip him up and make him fail and fall. Isn't it encouraging that that never happened and that never will happen, to trip Jesus up, to make him fall and fail? That's good news for us if you're wondering. You have Jesus as, as truth and life, perfect, sinless God in the flesh. No Pharisee or scribe or Sadducee is going to trip Jesus up and he's going to be faithful to declare the truth. You have this this large group of people. I believe it was a large group. It says all the people came again unto him. So you have a, a bunch of people coming in, gathering around Jesus. Uh, we have no record of Jesus doing anything like doing anything different here where like he didn't stand outside the temple and do this big miracle and then the crowd comes and he's like, okay, let's go inside and I'm going to teach you something. We don't have that recorded here. So it appears as Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, walks into the temple, sits down and starts teaching the people. Teaching with power, with authority and with boldness. He's God in the flesh. He has the words of life. He is life. He is speaking truth with boldness. And can you, can you picture this scene? I want you to picture this scene, which helps to do with familiar stories oftentimes. Picture this scene here. You have a crowd sitting or standing around Jesus. You have Jesus sitting there. You have Jesus speaking to these people with power, authority, with truth. Then all of a sudden, this teaching time is interrupted by verse number three, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst so can you picture this this scene i mean imagine us in here teaching time and all of a sudden somebody walks in dragging this woman behind him a big mob of people dragging this woman behind him it would be kind of distracting it would be it would have your attention i'm guessing a woman kicking and screaming and a bunch of men dragging her in here that would be uncomfortable probably but you have Jesus here teaching, and then these men drag this, this woman into the, the temple here, and it's the scribes and the Pharisees dragging this woman in. So it would be the religious leaders, the scribes would have been experts in interpreting the law, often referred to as lawyers. Oftentimes they were indeed Pharisees, but the Pharisees were known for their strict adherence or for, for their careful keeping and, and knowledge of the Mosaic law, at least superficially is how they kind of kept the law um and their oral traditions so publicly they would try to keep these laws to a t laws and traditions to a t Um, they were the dominant religious influence among the jewish people so people would look to them for leadership for how what they should do how they should act Um, they were usually hostile towards jesus in john i believe all of them are except for nicodemus i believe they're all hostile to jesus if I remember right, they didn't like how popular Jesus was. And we've talked about that of the, the Pharisees being jealous of Jesus, that, hey, people are listening. People might be believing that he actually is the Messiah. So we have this, this jealousy, this hatred going on. They didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. They possibly feared losing their influence with the people and what the Romans would do if Jesus started a revolt. And, and that's a whole other conversation with them being scared of what the Romans would do and the Romans taking their power and their authority. But you have these Pharisees who, let's just, they didn't like Jesus very much. And they were looking for ways to get him to stumble and, and trip and fail and fall. So they bring this woman caught up in adultery and they throw her in front of Jesus. Remember, this is a room that's already filled with with people where Jesus would have been teaching. They just throw this woman in. Think about the woman here. Think of how she would have felt, possibly the emotions, probably the emotions she would have been going through. I would imagine she's scared. I I would imagine she's embarrassed. I would imagine that uh, she would rather have been anywhere else but in front of Jesus and all these people and these religious leaders. I I imagine her weeping. I imagine her head down, not making eye contact with anybody. I, I just imagine this This. Poor, broken lady being drugged in by these Pharisees to be made a, a, a scene in, in front of Jesus. The Pharisees do not care about her or her feelings or her emotions or what she was facing. The Pharisees, I don't even think, cared about justice or, or righteousness. They cared about getting Jesus to fall and trip and fail and humiliate himself publicly, or get in trouble with the Romans. That's what they cared about. Verse number four, they say unto him, master, and master is talking about rabbi or or teacher. Do you think that's really the view that they had of Jesus, master or rabbi or or great teacher? I I believe they, they did this to make a public display of Jesus And also, I believe they said it with as much sarcasm as they they could muster. They had no respect and they had no love for Jesus. They thought he was a liar. They didn't believe he was the truth. And they wanted him to fail and fall. And they say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Like there's no question about she's guilty. We actually caught her in the act of adultery. And we grabbed her and we drug her in here. We're throwing her before you. She is guilty. There's no question about it. We caught her doing her thing. She is guilty of adultery. Look at verse 5. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? So according to the law, Moses said that she's guilty of death. And that she should be stoned. She should be executed. We have her here, Jesus. She's guilty. She should be stoned. What do you you say about that? What's your opinion on this situation, Jesus? She's guilty. She's in front of you. She's broken the law. What should we do, Jesus? Tell us here. She's guilty. What do you say should happen? And, And we know that the seventh commandment does forbid adultery. Leviticus 20, verse 10 does describe the death penalty for those who commit adultery. Jesus in his earthly ministry even spoke against adultery. He even spoke against the the thought or the attitude behind adultery, the the wicked thought that, that conceives adultery. Jesus spoke against that in Matthew 5. If guilty from a logical standpoint... They were correct in saying that that she deserved to be punished. It doesn't really seem like they were really looking for righteous judgment out of the situation. Like that wasn't their goal. Hey, Jesus, judge righteously. This horrible, sinful woman did something really bad. Judge righteously. If they were, if they were looking for righteous judgment out of this situation, where's the man that she was caught committing adultery with so i think that's good insight to uh them not really looking for justice here um and historically the man caught of in committing adultery he would this is one of the things i read about he would be buried up to his knees or his waist in dung and then they would wrap a soft cloth around his head Two men would, and then they would put a coarser cloth around his head and they would just squeeze and pull until he died. But the soft cloth was so there would be no scarring. So then it wasn't their fault for killing him. It was an act of God's judgment on them. So that's just history stuff. But they say they're looking for justice. They bring this woman in, we gotta stone this woman, we get, we have to kill this woman. She's caught in adultery. She's guilty. Well, where's the man? Um where's the other guilty person? Knowing the pharisees, knowing how evil they were, they could have set this whole thing up. They could have planned this whole situation for this adulterous act to take place. They could have jumped in and taken her out. Let's go trip Jesus up. I think even the man involved could have been a pharisee. It could have been part of them. That's just me thinking, don't you don't have to believe that. If they were really after justice, why not just take her and try her in their own courts? And that would have solved the problem. Simple slam dunk case. They caught her, there's witnesses. Why why would they need Jesus? Why would they need to consult Jesus for legal advice? He was not part of the Sanhedrin. He, he, He was not a judge in this sense. Jesus saw through all of that. Jesus saw through all of their their facade of their their righteous their self-righteous behavior that they were trying to put on. He knew their hearts, he knew their motives, and he was not rattled by them. He knew verse 6 this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. So, he knew they were just trying to trip him up. They were trying to get Jesus to say or do something that they could use to destroy him. Jesus knew all of this. It's a pretty clever plan, pharisaically speaking. They thought that they had him, because for Jesus to object to the execution, he would be opposing the Mosaic law, which would discredit him, which would discredit his claim to be the Messiah, to call for the execution in this, in this public place, in this way, would go against his reputation as compassionate toward sinners. The, the Jewish leaders could also, if he called for this execution, the Jewish leaders could then report him to the Romans for instigating an execution in defense or in defiance of Roman authority. So they could have tattled on Jesus to the Romans and let the Romans go after him for trying to bring up this, this revolt and sidestepping their authority. So you see, it looks like the perfect trap. Where no matter what Jesus says, the Pharisees think that they have him. Whether before the people or before the Romans, it looks like they have Jesus in trouble. And they must have thought that they did it. They must have thought that they finally had Jesus. We finally got him, boys. We got him in trouble here. I love how Jesus responds, though. But Jesus stooped down. Sorry, we're going to stop reading for a second. This could be such a pressure situation. But they're dealing with God here. And he knows just what to do. Man, if you get caught with, oh man, they it looks like they got me here. There's no right answer. Jesus doesn't even appear to be worried here because he knew what they were thinking. He knew what he was going to do. He knew how this was going to play out and he would act perfectly righteously. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So, like the most high-pressure situation that any of us would have ever been in here, and Jesus just acts like they're not even there. And he just kind of bends down and starts playing in the dirt. Writing in the dirt with his with his fingers. And I've heard all kinds of theories of what he was writing. I've heard sermons on what he was writing. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing. He could have just been scribbling in the dirt. That probably would have made him more mad than anything. For him not to write anything. <laughs> So we have Jesus writing in the dirt here, acting like he doesn't even hear this this mob of people. He's playing in the dirt. How mad do you think that made the power-hungry thrive on respect of people Pharisees get? They're used to being respected, and, oh, Pharisees, what do we do here? Pharisee this, Pharisee that. And you have Jesus, huh, you think you got me? I'm going to act like you're not even here and I'm going to write in the dirt you think they're just kind of bubbling and boiling oh I can't wait to get this Jesus I can't wait to hear what he's going to say I can't wait to catch him up and I picture them Jesus we're talking to you Jesus we're important people here Jesus what's your answer answer us Jesus Jesus this is a really good one we worked really hard on this and we're going to actually catch you up finally We are so smart. We finally figured out a way to beat you. Answer our question. And I can just see them fuming and bubbling and getting getting so angry. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him. So they keep, they don't stop. They don't let up. They continue asking the question. Jesus, answer us. Jesus, what do we do? Jesus, what do you say? So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. Can you picture Jesus just standing up here like he doesn't care what they're saying? And he answers their question. I don't think it's the answer they were looking for. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Can you picture him? Oh, man. I didn't see that one coming, Jesus. You're good, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus makes this statement, and then what does he do? He stoops down again and starts writing in the dirt. He makes this huge condemning statement to these Pharisees, and then he just kneels back down and starts writing in the dirt. He left the Pharisees to stew on his response and in their guilt. His answer is, is brilliant. It upheld the law in the sense that he didn't deny the woman's guilt. It actually showed the power of the law by exposing the sinfulness of the woman's accusers. Isn't that what the law does? The law shows that none of us are perfect. The law shows that every single one of us has a sin problem. The law is a schoolmaster teaching us that that we can't earn salvation on our own. We can't be right before God on our own. We don't have enough good works to ever be right before God because we're sinners, and breaking one of the commands, you break them all, and you're guilty standing before God in guilt. So Jesus actually exposes the power of the law, the law doing what it's supposed to do to show that we are exceedingly sinful and that we cannot be righteous on our own. Jesus is brilliant here. He also avoided getting in trouble with the Romans for instigating an execution. He doesn't instigate an execution. He resolves it. He would also continue his compassionate reputation. You see, the law stated that witnesses to a capital offense were to be the first ones to throw the stones. Jesus cut right to their own personal sin problem. So that's why Jesus says here, if you have no sin, why don't you pick up the stone and you throw it first? Who's the witness here that's going to be without sin? That's going to stand up and that's going to stone this woman? Because the law condemns every single one of you people. You are all guilty before God. If they broke it down, they were all guilty before God. So so verse 7, he says, um, He that is without a sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Then verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus revealed the hypocrisy of this woman's accusers. He revealed that they were unfit to be her judges and executioners. That, that wasn't their goal in coming here. Their, their goal wasn't for righteousness and justice. Their goal was to condemn Jesus. And their plan didn't work. They came to condemn. They walked away being condemned. And I think that's a, a sad thought there too. Because Jesus just exposed their sinful religious system, the one that they tried to uphold publicly, to to look right and to be right and to to be perfect in the sight of men and that their keeping of the law could somehow make them right before God. Jesus exposed them as sinners. They realized they were condemned and they, they walked away in their condemnation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they had fallen down on their faces and repented? Oh God, I'm not righteous. My righteousness is is not good enough to make me right before you. I repent of my ways. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are Lord. Please forgive me. What do they do? They're they're guilty. Guilty. They're they're convicted in in their conscience. But they puff themselves up and they walk right out of there. In their sin, just like they walked in with their sin. The truth was exposed. They rejected and walked away. I mean, how would they have looked in front of the people if they admitted that they were sinners and they were wrong? That would have probably hurt their, their self-righteous image a little bit. Second part of verse 9. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. So the accusers walk out. It's interesting they walk out, oldest to youngest. And I've read lots of theories and opinions on that. Um, it, it's just interesting to me that the oldest guy heads out first, and then they just trail right out there, oldest to youngest, or were the, the young ones just following the old ones? Um, they were. They were convicted. There was. There was guilt. It's just interesting the Bible records that. I guess. Um, So we have this woman standing before Jesus. Now think about this. She had just been brought in, accused of adultery. I mean, there there were witnesses that said she had done this. Her accusers leave. She's with Jesus. From a human standpoint, this is a great time to kind of run away and hide if you're considering that what you got yourself into could cost you your life. Humanly speaking, maybe run away and hide here because you could be in big trouble. There's witnesses for what you did. She doesn't. She, she stands there. She didn't use this opportunity to es- escape. I mean, she could have taken off, but she stays with Jesus. I believe she was broken and repentant. And I believe that because of the way Jesus deals with her and, and responds to her. Jesus knew her attitude and her heart. Jesus knew what she was facing. Jesus knew what she thought about him. Jesus knew what this woman was was feeling and and going through. Verse 10. So Jesus had been down, like, writing on the ground. Everyone leaves, everyone walks out. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Women, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Can you picture Jesus? Hey, where did everybody go? This woman is left standing in front of Jesus. I imagine still weeping. There's no witness left to condemn her, no one to verify the charges. Everybody else was out. It's the woman and it's Jesus. And Jesus says, Where's your accusers? Where's everyone that said you did this? Where's everyone that wanted to kill you? Where did they go? Verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So Jesus, as God, has the divine right to forgive this woman. The sinner is left alone alone With the only one who was perfect and able to condemn her. In mercy and love, he forgave her. And I want to talk about that in just the next page. We're almost done. But you have just, righteous God, perfectly just and righteous and holy, who is somehow able to forgive a woman or to forgive sin in general. So how can God as holy and just and righteous, how can he forgive sin and still be just and righteous? Is that that's a, I think that's a, a fair question. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So we have Jesus not condemning this woman. He does tell her to abandon her sinful lifestyle. Isn't that interesting? So I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. So I, I forgive you, quit living this lifestyle that you're living. Quit doing the sin that you're doing. I've forgiven you, that's not a license to keep doing whatever you want to do just because I've forgiven you. I forgive you, go and sin no more. Forgiveness, grace, is not a license to sin. Romans six one makes that clear. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does it say? God forbid. Forbid it not, don't. Don't do it. I am so thankful in this story to be reminded of God's grace, God's wisdom, God's forgiveness. You see all those in here. His wisdom to combat this situation, wow. That's a God that, that we can trust in, an all-knowing God that can figure out even the most difficult situations for us. So how can God be righteous and just and still forgive Sins. How how can God be righteous and just, yet still be merciful, gracious, and offer forgiveness? Because he paid that sin debt. Sin had to be paid for in order for God to forgive sin and still be just and righteous. The sacrificial death of Jesus fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. So God can still be just and God still can forgive because the propitiation was made for sins. That satisfactory payment. The law exposes sin and declares sinners guilty. Through Jesus, forgiveness is made possible for those who put their faith in him. Romans 3, verses 24 through 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the self-righteous folks who say they don't need God, who say they don't, They don't need anything but themselves. They're not righteous and they'll never be righteous apart from Christ. We need his righteousness to cover and forgive our sins. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier. You see that? He's still just and he can justify. Because he paid the price. He was the redeemer. He is the propitiation. Of him which believeth in Jesus. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful Savior that we have. Aren't you thankful? Man, I'm glad I don't have to try to earn His favor on my own. I'm wondering at the end of the day, have I done enough good? Because the answer is always nope. Never done enough good on my own. I need Jesus. And I'm so thankful that He is my Savior and He is my. Lord, what a wonderful God and Savior that we have. He is so worthy of glory and honor and praise. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in his righteousness. And praise him. He's so worthy of praise. What a wonderful Savior that we have. Let's pray.